Welcome. My name is Jordan. I am the rector here at Holy Trinity Church, and if you are new, please do introduce yourself to me afterwards. I'd love to get to know you and attempt to remember your name. Sandy was right. On this Sunday, the church proclaims that Christ is king. On this Sunday, the church announces that it bows down only to Jesus, the Messiah and Lord. On this Sunday, the church declares that it does not give its allegiance to any other person, any other principality, any other power claiming to be sovereign. And yet the crucial question for us, I think, is the church is this. Will the church live out its profession? Will the church be faithful to its declaration? Will the church walk the walk as it talks the talk? Now, those are the questions that I ultimately want to get to a little bit with us. But first, I think we need to back up and just consider for a moment the extent of Christ's lordship, of his kingship, and then the unique nature of his lordship and kingship. The extent of it is, is like laid out in beautiful, poetic, and kind of hymnic fashion in Colossians chapter 1. Many consider this to be one of the earliest Christian hymns. Listen to it afresh with me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Notice five times all things are mentioned. It's comprehensive in scope. Nothing is left out of the claim of Christ. And then notice how this, pro- this proliferation of pronouns kind of throughout it. You get this by him, the agent and the author of creation. You get this through him. He's the means of creation. You get this for him. He is the purpose or the ultimate goal of creation. You get this in him. He's the power that sustains and upholds creation. See, many scholars think that this is the earliest, one of the earliest of Christian hymns that we know of. And that what was happening as the early Christians came to grips with this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, this man born in Nazareth, this man who did his ministry in the area of Galilee, and this man who was crucified on a Roman cross, that this man is Lord, then what are the implications for that of our understanding of like the whole entire cosmos, of everything that exists? And some even believe that this hymn was used, that people would say it, they would sing it before somebody was baptized. Because when they were baptized, they were being brought under the lordship of Christ. They were being brought into a world in which he rules and he reigns. And so in Colossians, you see this comprehensive and multifaceted nature of Christ's kingship being brought before the people of God. 
Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch Reformed theologian and politician, once put it this way. He said, there is no square inch of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say mine. There's not one square inch in all of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say mine. You see, this just kind of explodes our categories of sacred and secular. <laughs> there, there is no sacred and secular according to this hymn. There's just all things over which Christ rules. Yeah, there may be places where people kind of epistemologically are ignorant of his rule and reign. There may be places where people are volitionally resistant to his rule and his reign. There may be places where people are emotionally distant from his rule and his reign. But this is a saying that there are, are actually, like metaphysically, if we are to use that word now, no places where Christ does not actually rule and reign. There are no places where he does not cry, mine. In him, all things hold together, the Apostle Paul tells us. I think it's instinctively hard for us in our culture to believe this. <laughs> Many sociologists of religion have been arguing in recent decades that the decline in church attendance in Western countries may not exactly be for the reasons that we think it is. Some of us tend to suppose that it may be because of militant atheism, the sort of hostility towards God at the deepest kind of intellectual and emotional level. Think of like a Richard Dawkins or something like that. But a lot of these sociologists of religion are actually arguing that maybe it's not militant atheism or methodological atheism so much as practical atheism. In other words, what is really eating away at the life and the ministry of God's people in the church is not outright hostility toward God, but maybe the belief that the existence and the reality of God is just largely irrelevant to the real business and busyness of daily life. Like, yeah, he may exist, he may be real, but he's just irrelevant to what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. He's irrelevant to changing diapers. <laughs> he's irrelevant to paying bills. He's irrelevant from what I do Monday through Friday, nine to five. There's one author named Craig Gay in particular. He, he wrote a book, he said, the way, the titled The Way of the Modern World, Why It's Tempting to Live as If God Doesn't Exist. And in that book, he argues that our modern society and culture can kind of be described in terms of three words. The three words are secularity, control, and anxiety. And he said the three words are inherently bound together. They're linked. He said secularity is that sense of organizing and living life as if God is irrelevant to it in some sense. But when God is irrelevant to the way in which we live life, then we're left with ourselves being in control of our lives. So he says secularity leads to control. We've got to make something of our lives. We've got to make something of our future, or else we're lost. We're doomed. And he said that inevitably is what leads to a culture of anxiety. You have secularity. God is irrelevant to the day-to-day -day of our lives. And then so we're left in control to make something out of the day-to-day -day of our lives. And that leads us to a place of deep anxiety. Because deep down, we fear that we're actually not in control. And we fear that we don't actually have the knowledge and the resources and the wisdom to be in control and make the world the way we would like it to be. 
I was really struck by this. I was walking, watching docu-film. Have you heard of this before? It's like a film and a documentary put together. And it was about uh, Bill Gates and his life, especially kind of post-Microsoft, um, how he's exerted so much into humanitarian aid. And it talked about him trying to eradicate polio from the face of the earth and how he spent many, many years trying to do that and hundreds of millions of dollars trying to do that. And he's come so close, like he's come to where there's just a group of maybe 20 or 30 people that have polio, so close to eradicating it from the entire face of the earth, but he can never quite complete it. And there's new outbreaks that pop up every time he gets really close. And one of the, per the people that was kind of proctoring this documentary asked him, like, do you ever, are you ever tempted to just despair? Or do you ever live in kind of constant anxiety over the fact that you just, you want to control this, you want to eradicate this thing for good purposes, but you, your attempts are ultimately fall short every time. And he kind of didn't know what to do with the question a little bit. You see, on this Sunday, the church proclaims that Christ is the king. That in him, all things hold together. And I think one of the questions for us is like, do we really believe that? I mean, it sounds good in theory. Sounds good on paper. Sounds good when we sing it. But do we really get it? I don't know about you, but I find it difficult to get this. <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine the world as the place where Christ reigns sometimes. I mean, it's easy for me when I'm in the beautiful green sloping hills of Scotland. But I hard, find it hard when I'm sitting in traffic on the 405. <laughs> I find it easy when I'm in, office, in an office reading books and contemplating the deep realities of life. But I find it difficult when I'm in a high school maintenance yard putting trash away? Do we really feel and experience and imagine Christ reigns? See, I need help with this. One of the books that I've gone to to help me is a little kind of liturgy book called Every Moment Holy. If any of you have gotten to know Susie and I in the last couple months, you'll know that this book is close to our hearts and becoming increasingly so as it tries to help us with that sense that every moment is holy. Every moment comes under the rule and the reign of Christ. And the very last liturgy out of 150 of them is entitled, A Liturgy of Praise to the King of Creation. And it's a poetic meditation on this hymn from Colossians chapter 1. And I found this so helpful for getting a sense of the feel and the imagination that Christ does in fact reign. So let me read some extended portions for you. He starts like this. Our thoughts of you, O Lord, have been far too small and far too few. For seldom have we considered how specific is the exercise of your authority, extending as it does to the myriad particulars of creation. And then he kind of draws upon Abraham Kuyper's quote and says, there is no quarter over which you are not king. And then he contemplates the different aspects of creation. He says, Christ, you are the snow king. You are the maker of all weathers. You are the king of sunlight and storms. The king of gray skies and rain. Not that we know much about it here. 
You are the rain king, the sun king, the hurricane king, the king of autumn, the king of spring. And he goes on. You are the king of the rabbits, the king of the tall trees, the god of youth and the god of age. You are the acorn king, the river god, the swamp king, the king of glades and dales and hutting birds. You are the horse king, the crag king, the lord of bees, the king of walruses, the commander of rhinos, the lord of lightning bugs, the cave king, the ruler of grassy plains and mountain peaks, king of cockadoos, and the king of wolves. And he still goes on. <laughs> he says, you are the weaver of unseen fabrics of the world. You're the lord of the atoms, ruler of electrons, lord of gravity, king of quarks. And then he goes on. You are the god of justice, the god of wisdom, the god of mercy, god of redemption, the lord of love. All this is true of you, O Lord, for you are lord of lords and you are king of kings. And still our thoughts are too small and too few. See, the first thing that Christ the King Sunday encourages us to consider is the comprehensive scope and the particular detail of Christ's kingship. There is no square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. But then when we come to our gospel reading, there's something of an irony that comes in. Because what we realize when we come to Jesus' interactions with Pilate is that this king who is sovereign over the whole entire universe actually exercises his kingship in some really unexpected ways. See, John tries to jive this point home in his gospel. He's one of the gospels that almost never mentions the kingdom of God or kingship throughout the majority of his story. It shows up in chapter 3 a bit. There's a little hint in chapter 6. But for the most part, notions of Christ's kingship are silent and hovering in the background. Why? Because John wants to choose his moment to talk about Christ's kingship. And the moment that John wants to choose comes in chapters 18 and 19. It's when Jesus is betrayed. It's when he's arrested. It's when he's put on trial. It's when he's mocked. It's when he's tortured, it's when he's crucified, and it's when he cries out, God, I thirst from the cross. That is the moment that John wants to talk about Jesus' kingship. Because John wants us to know that Jesus' kingship is unlike any other kingship that we know in this world. It is a kingship where his throne is the tree. It is a kingship that rules in humility. It's a kingship whose glory and magnificence and power shines through in weakness and suffering. That is the kingship of Lord Jesus Christ. That is the kingship that we proclaim on this Christ the King Sunday. And this kingship is first raised by this political figure of Pilate, the Roman governor in Palestine. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Question that's riddled with irony because God knows and we know that he's a lot more than just king of the Jews. Yet Jesus does not answer Pilate's question. Pilate questions him again, your nation and your chief priests have you delivered you over to me. What have you done? 
And Jesus points Pilate to the unique nature of his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, says Jesus, my servants would have been fighting that I might be, not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Notice what Jesus is doing. He's walking a fine line with Pilate. He's not denying kingship altogether, but nor is he accepting Pilate's idea of kingship. He's not denying power altogether, but nor is he accepting the world's idea of power. If he were a king in Pilate's sense, he would be calling troops and myriads of angels to defend him and to protect him from his enemies right there in that moment. But Jesus doesn't want that. I mean, just moments earlier, John chapter 18, verses 10 to 11, if you want to look it up later, people came to arrest Jesus. Troops came to arrest him, and Peter takes out his sword, and he strikes the high priest's servant, cuts off his ear. Jesus looks at Peter and says, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? See what Jesus does in that moment? He looks at Peter, and he looks at all of his followers since, and he says, Peter, this is not the way that my kingdom's coming into the world. It will not be through the sword, Peter. It will be through the cup that I drink on the cross, the cup that the Father has prepared for me. See, the real issue which dominates the final scenes of Jesus' earthly life is what is the nature of his lordship? What is the nature of his kingdom? And we're told that he will reign, he does reign, but he will do so by the blood of his cross. Somebody sent me this week a reflection, a poem, by somebody named Steve Garnes Holmes. And the poem is entitled, The Suffering Sovereign. And I thought it might help us consider the uniqueness of Jesus' kingship. Condemned, scorned, and disposed of, whose life does not matter, enthroned under the weight of a cross, crowned with pain and humiliation, holding a scepter of powers, powerlessness. The little man is a sad excuse for a king. Then he talks about some of the world's views of kingship that is devoid from suffering and weakness and humiliation. And then he says this, Give me the one whose sovereignty is to rule in all suffering to bless all pain by occupying it, to shine the light of love from inside the darkest night, whom nothing can prevent walking with us in our gravest trials. Give me royalty under whose reign every abuse and injustice, even toward the least honorable, is treason, whose decree, even from within our public agony and secret prison cells, is paradise. You can have your mighty warrior, but give me the little man with holes in his hands, whose heart is never far from mine, and whose imperial reign is right where I am. See, on this Sunday, the church proclaims that Christ is king. The church announces that it bows down only to Jesus, the suffering sovereign. The church declares that it does not give allegiance to any other person, any other principality, and any other power claiming to be sovereign. Yet the crucial question is, will the church live out its profession? 
Will the church be faithful to its declaration? Will the church walk the walk that matches its talk? It seems to me that Pilate and the crowds in John chapter 18 represent two temptations that constantly challenge the church's faithfulness in every age. So a brief look at them as we conclude. In Pilate, I think we see the temptation to temper the truth in order to maintain position and power. Verses 38 and 39, Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? It's hard to know the tone in which Pilate speaks that. Is it a tone of sincerity, of inquiry? Is it a tone of cynicism and pragmatism? Is it a tone of political expediency? But we're told that after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in this man. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? You see, I think Pilate's talking with a tone of pragmatism here. Political expediency is the name of the game for Pilate. He knows Jesus is innocent, and yet he wants to satisfy the crowd. So he goes to them and says, look, at Passover, you do this exchange thing. Should we let this guy go? And it backfires on him. Crowds say, no, we want Barabbas. And all of a sudden, Pilate's left going, how do I appease the crowds who have just asked for Barabbas while also realizing that this man is actually innocent? And Pilate condemns an innocent man. The next scene is him being dressed in a robe and given a scepter and a crown of thorns, dressed like a king and then mocked and spat on and tortured. You see, the question of truth is not actually the primary question for Pilate. The primary question for Pilate is, how do I appease the crowd so that I can maintain a position of control and power and privilege? He fears losing control. And I think the church would be amiss if it thought itself somehow immune from this temptation. One commentator asked it this way, forever fearful in this increasingly post-Christian era, of losing members and thus losing influence in the community, does the church temper its message and its mission in a desperate effort to maintain position? You see, being the church in this era is an interesting thing. Because what we're seeing is a culture in many ways that is slowly and not so slowly in some instances drifting away from some of the deepest convictions and beliefs of the gospel. And how we respond to that is a really interesting thing. Do we seek to hold on to the cultural control and power that we have always had? You see, there's a way of living in a sort of practical atheism in which we believe that God doesn't really have to do with the particulars of our life. That's one extreme. And then there's the other extreme of actually saying, no, God has to do with the particulars of our life, but believing that we need to maintain control as Christians of society at large. We fear that things are spinning out of control and we don't know what to do with it and there are not good ways and there are good and bad ways of responding to it. And one way we can respond is by using power in unhelpful ways. But another way we can respond is by tempering our message so that it appeals more to the crowds and gains us positions of power and prestige. You see, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood this in his time. 
In our sacred supper pamphlets, there was a quote that I thought was wonderful about his, he talked about the gospel of cheap grace that the church was tempted to propagate under pressure. He said, cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It's baptism without the discipline of community. It's the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without the living and incarnate Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, in what ways are we tempted to temper the truth for the sake of position and privilege and power? In the crowds, I think we see another temptation. It's the temptation to seek the kingdom of God on our own terms rather than on Jesus' terms. Notice what the crowds do. They say, not this man. Notice how Pilate was saying, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And then the crowds don't say, not this king. They say, not this man. They're not even willing to acknowledge that he's a king. That's the real question. They say, we want Barabbas. And John gives us a really little interesting note. He says, now Barabbas was a robber. And that word in the Greek is a really interesting word, a word that often has political overtones. That's why some translators translate it not as robber, but as something like insurrectionist or revolutionary. It's a picture of somebody who believes that the way the kingdom of God is going to be brought into the world on earth as it is in heaven is through the grasping after political power and revolution. Once again, I think we'd be amiss if we thought the church was immune from this temptation. You see, throughout history, again and again, in crisis moments, the people of God have often selected a Barabbas rather than a Jesus, a power wielder rather than a peacemaker. As one person put it, we want a macho rather than a suffering servant. It's often born out of zeal, righteous zeal for the kingdom of God, but coupled with impatience. See, what Jesus models for us is a different way of being about the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. He models a way of gentle and humble confidence that God will work his purposes out in the world through faithfulness, through commitment, through suffering, through humility, through service, and that he does not need to grasp for power. I'm struck in Psalm 34, how the whole psalm talks about like the nation's rage and kingdoms tottering, and it's this whole picture of chaos in the world. (laughs) The psalmist who is talking feels like his world and the world around him is spinning out of control. And yet, what does the psalm conclude with? Be still. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. Brothers and sisters, on this Sunday, we proclaim that Christ is king and we bow to no other. Be still and know that he is God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.
Amen.